22. The price of the flour was only 18 pence. But I must pay for my rudeness in running away without apologizing. And you can buy a ribbon for yourself with the extra money. I shall get something a great deal more useful than that. She said. You seem to be a sensible young woman for your age. I wonder what this useful purchase will be. Something to make my little Dickie strong. Mary said softly. And who is Dickie? Asked the pretty granddaughter, and she looked so sympathetic that somehow the whole story came out. For Mary's heart was full, and words came readily in response to this touch of kindness. I shall call and see him. The girl promised, when she had inquired where Mary lived. And so the misfortune of the broken flower pot turned out to be the best bit of good fortune Mary had ever enjoyed. Not only did her new friend come laden with delicacies for the invalid, but she interested herself in having him sent with some other children for a month to the seaside. And when Dickie returned, brown and rosy, and full of life and spirits, Mary felt she could sell her flowers with a smiling face again, and look forward to the future with a light heart. M.H. A hundred years ago. True Tales of the Year 1805. The Lord M.A.S.S.E.R.E. in his imprisonment. Truth is stranger than fiction, says a very old proverb, which is certainly illustrated by the following tale of an eccentric nobleman's life. Lord Messerine was born in 1742, and in due course sent to Cambridge University, where, however, he learned next to nothing except how to row on the river, and this he did to perfection. On coming of age, he started off to do the grand tour as it was called a leisurely visit to the various capital cities of European countries. This was a custom much in vogue amongst the young men of the wealthier classes a hundred years ago. Our young friend, however, went no further than Paris, for that fascinating city was too much for the foolish fellow, and he spent his money right and left, till he was almost penniless. He then fell into the hands of an unscrupulous adventurer, a native of Syria who put before him a plausible tale of how easy it would be to make a fortune by importing salt from Syria to France. Lord Messerine, in the hope of regaining the money he had wasted, invested all he could lay his hands on in this wild scheme, and of course, as it was a fraud, lost every penny. The next misfortune that happened to him was an arrest for debt, and he made acquaintance with the inside of La Chatelet, one of the largest prisons in Paris. He could, however, have satisfied his creditors, and been released from prison, had he been willing to allow his estates to be charged with his debts, but this he persistently refused to do. There was at that time a law in France permitting debtors who had suffered 25 years imprisonment to be allowed to go free, with all their liabilities discharged, and this extraordinary young man actually decided to do this, and to settle his debts by undergoing a quarter of a century of prison life. Beyond the inability to leave the prison, Lord Messerine seems to have suffered at first but few privations, for cheerful society was not denied him, and he managed to woo and wed the daughter of one of the principal officials of the place. A plan of escape was at length made, and as the young lady's father was able and willing to help in the matter, it was very nearly successful, but not quite, for... Just as Lord Messerine was leaving the door of the prison to enter the carriage which was in waiting for him, he was arrested, and taken back to the prison. It appears that the governor's suspicions had been aroused by seeing a carriage and pair loitering about the gate. As soon as he had caught the escaping prisoner, he ordered him to be lodged in the dungeon, a gloomy cell, below the same, on which Le Chatelet was built. Lord Messerine now knew all the rigors of a French prison. He was left to languish in damp and darkness, 
with no companions but the rats, and only the coarsest food. When at last the twenty-five years were ended, and his release came, he was indeed a pitiful object, gaunt, yellow, with a long and beard reaching below his knees, but his wife had remained constant to him, and together they set out for England. On landing at Dover, Lord Messerine was the first to step on shore, and falling on his knees, he exclaimed fervently, God bless this land of freedom. He lived nearly twenty years in the enjoyment of the estate for which he had suffered imprisonment for so long, and died in 1805. The sago tree. Sago is made from the pith of a tree trunk. This tree the sago tree is a kind of palm, like the date tree and the coconut tree. It is found in the East Indian Islands, where it gives food to many thousands of people, particularly in the large island of New Guinea, where a great part of the population is almost entirely dependent upon it. The sago tree grows in swampy places, either by the sea or in little hollows by the hillsides. It is thicker than the coconut palm, but it does not grow quite so tall, being about 30 feet high when full grown, and perhaps 20 inches in diameter. What looks like the root of the sago tree is really a creeping underground stem, from which a spike of flowers grows up when the tree is about 10 or 15 years old. For some years, while the plant is young, the upright growing stem is covered and completely hidden by very large spiny leaves. These are rather like enormous feathers, of which the center stems, or midribs, corresponding to the quill of the feather, are from 12 to 15 feet long, and, in their widest part, as thick as a man's leg. They are used like bamboo by the natives, for building houses, and also for making the roofs and floors of houses that are built of other kinds of wood. The bases of the midribs widen out and wrap round the stem like a kind of sheath, as almost all leaf stalks do to some extent. But the sheaths of the sago tree are so large that, when they are broken off and trimmed, they are like large baskets or troughs wide in the middle, where they have grasped the stem, and narrow at the ends, where they have joined the tree or are rolled up to form the midrib of the leaf. It is interesting to remember this, because the natives actually use the sheaths as baskets and troughs. The hollow stem of the growing sago tree is not more than half an inch in thickness, and it is filled with a light, pithy matter, from which sago is made. This pithy matter varies in color from a rusty tinge to white, and is rather like the eatable part of a dry apple. Strings of harder, woody fiber run through it like straight veins, and these are of no use for making sago. The pith is best for use when the tree is full grown and just about to flower, and it is then that the natives cut it down. The tree is cut close to the ground, and, as it lies on the soil, its leaves are cut off, and a portion of the bark is shaved away from the upper side of the trunk so as to lay the pith bare. A native takes a club with a sharp stone in the end of it and beats the sago pith with it. By this means he breaks up the fibers and the pith into little chips, taking care that they are kept within the trunk. From time to time these chips are loaded into one of the sheaths of the midribs, and carried away to be cleaned. The beater continues to break up the pith until there is nothing left but the hollow tree trunk. The sago is separated from the fibers in the pith by the aid of water. The natives take two sheaths of the sago plant and make them into water troughs. They set them up upon little frames, one sheath a little higher than the other, with one of its narrow ends projecting like a spout over the lower sheath. A kind of net like bark or skin, obtained from the coconut tree, serves as a strainer or sieve and is stretched across the upper sheaf or through. They empty the broken pith into the through above the strainer, and pour water upon it. The soft part of the pith is a kind of starch, which dissolves in the water, 
and so flows through the sieve and down the spout into the lower through. But the fibers are held back by the sieve. In order to get all the sago starch out of the pith, the sago maker kneads and squeezes the pith until nothing but fiber remains. This is waste, and is thrown away. When the sago-laden water falls into the lower through it rests a while, and the sago sinks into the bottom of the sheath as a soft reddish sediment, while the clear water rises to the top, and by and by trickles over the end of the sheath. When this through is nearly full the sago starch is taken out, made into rolls, and wrapped in the leaves of the tree. The sago thus prepared is known as raw sago, and is used by the Icelanders without being further refined. They boil it in water, and eat it with fruits and salt, or they bake it into cakes in a little clay oven. When these cakes have been well dried they will keep for years. A man can make in a few days sufficient sago cakes to last him a whole year. It has been calculated that a single tree will produce about 1800 of these cakes. The sago which we use for our puddings is made by refining the raw sago. When our grandfathers and grandmothers were young, the best raw sago used to be mixed with water and rubbed into small grains before it was sent to Europe. At the present time the sago, after being moistened, is passed through a sieve into a shallow iron pot, placed over a fire, and in this way the round pearly sago which we use is produced. As this sago is half-baked in this operation, it will keep for a very long time. The Malays call the sago tree the rumbia and its pith sago from which word we get our name sago. We have here an instance of a Malay word which is in daily use in the English language. Faith and sight. A little story is told which helps to show the difference between faith and sight. The master of an infant school told a boy to move a stool in such a way that he was not seen by the little ones himself. Then he taught them this lesson. You cannot see anyone moving the stool, is it not alive? Oh, Mungersurur, it never was alive. Someone must be moving it. But you cannot see anybody, perhaps it moves itself. Mungersurur, though we don't see anybody, that makes no difference. It cannot move itself. Then he told them of the moon and stars, which, though we see no one move them, certainly do move, and no one could do it but God, whom we do not see. Yes, they said. It must be God, but then we cannot see him. Please, we must believe that it is he. You do believe it. Then, yes sir, or, then this is faith. He added, if you have little faith, what will you do then? I will shut myself up in a corner, said one little mite, and pray for more. Insect ways and means. V.I. How insects walk. Grown-up insects seem to be very short of legs compared with many of their distant relatives. Thus. While no member of the insect tribe when grown up has more than six legs, the centipede or the millipede may, as their names imply, possess a far greater number as many, indeed, as 242. But there is one curious likeness between the legs of the insects and those of their relatives the number of pairs of legs is always odd. The insect has three pairs, the centipede and millipede have a very variable number, ranging from 15 to 121 pairs. We have seen how wonderful the foot of the fly island with its two sticky plates for smooth surfaces, and its two claws for rough ones. The honeybee has very similar feet, but the two plates are joined to form one, as in the fly. When climbing rough surfaces the flat plates are raised up, and the claws used instead, but when a smooth or slippery place has to be crossed, the claws are pulled backwards and the plates are brought down. The legs of insects very much, according to the purpose for which they are used. Thus, the gnats, which spend the greater part of their time on the wing, have long slender legs, 
suitable for breaking the shock of alighting, whilst in other insects the legs are used for all kinds of work, such as seizing prey, carrying it, climbing, digging, and so on. When this is the case the legs are provided with spines, or bristles, in the mole cricket figure when the forelegs are very strong, being short and broad, and ending in a broad comb-like plate, which is used for digging, they are very like the great digging paws of the mole. The exact way in which insects walk is not easy to describe, and much study has been given to this most puzzling subject. Many devices have been adopted to make the insect draw a map of its course. In one instance the legs of a slow-walking beetle were painted, and the insect was then made to walk upon a clean sheet of paper, the track made by each leg being distinguished by the use of a different color. From this and other experiments it appears that there are always three legs in motion at the same time, or nearly so, meanwhile the remaining three legs support the body, first as in figure to the left foreleg steps out, then the right middle leg and the left hind leg, then the movement is taken up by the legs of the opposite side of the body, and so on. If the movement of the legs in the six-legged insects is difficult to find out, what shall we say when the centipede figure three and millipede come to be examined? These Bonot insects, are nearly related to the insects, and since they are common in our gardens, must be referred to here, according to the lines of a humorous poem, the centipede was said to have been happy till one day a toad, in fun, said, pray which leg moves after which, this raised her doubts to such a pitch she fell exhausted in the ditch, not knowing how to run, the last pair of legs in the centipede and millipede are never used for walking, and are generally much longer than the rest. In a South American species they are provided with delicate nerves, and are used as antennae or feelers, so that the animal is armed with organs of touch at each end of the body, in one kind of millipede. In the male the last pair of legs has a sound-producing apparatus, consisting of a ridged plate, which, by being rubbed against a set of tiny, bead-like bodies set in the surface of the last shield covering the body, produces a peculiar noise. Centipedes and millipedes generally shun the light and hide under stones and in crevices during the day, but there are some which love the sunlight, these kinds are remarkable for the great length and slenderness of the legs, which they part with readily when handled, most of these long-legged species are brightly colored with black and yellow stripes or spots, in their native haunts these creatures may be seen darting about after their prey in the Sunday heedless of the notice they attract by reason of their pretty colors, few birds or beasts would think of eating them, for these creatures have a providential instinct which tells them that the gaudily colored animals are generally very nasty to the taste. WPPYCRAFT. FZSALS. The man with the glasses. So common is short-sightedness nowadays that military officers, and sometimes private soldiers, are allowed to wear spectacles. Formerly this was not the case. Where, by special permission of the authorities, exceptions had been made. The unfortunate wearers of glasses in the army came in for the ridicule of their comrades, at the time when the French were fighting the Algerian chief, ABDL Cater. There was in a battalion of foot chasseurs a spectacled adjutant named Duterbray. His companions made great fun of him. A man who wore glasses could not, in their opinion, be much of a hero. One day Duterbray, engaged in a reconnoitering expedition, was slightly wounded, and taken prisoner by the enemy. He was brought before the Arab chief, the remainder of the French force had, in the meantime, taken refuge in a walled enclosure close by. Go to your companions, said ABDL Cater to Duterbray, 
and tell them that their lives shall be spared if they will surrender, yours, in that case, shall be spared also, but if they refuse to surrender, I will utterly exterminate them, and I will have you beheaded, and understand this clearly, I send you to your people on one condition that whether or not they accept my terms, you are in any case to return to me, do you accept my conditions, I do, replied Duterbray, Duterbray left the Arab camp, well aware that his only chance of life lay in the surrender of his battalion, if the French soldiers resolved to fight on, he was bound in honor to go back to death, Duterbray returned to his companions, he had always been a man of few words, and he said very little on this occasion, but what he said was to the point, it was this, chasseurs, if you do not surrender, the Arabs are going to cut off my head, now by rather than yield, every one of you, then the brave fellow turned his back, and went straight to the Arab camp, with the message that the French refused to surrender, the chief carried out his threat, the adjutant was beheaded, and his head spectacles and all was carried round the camp upon a pole for public exhibition, none could say that it was not the head of a brave man, ed what am I, no one can be pleased with me, I am dark and dull to see, those who money troubles tease hate me, for I spoil their ease, Welsh am I and English too, Scottish, in another view, wide and narrow, small and great, dreary, too, and desolate, let him think of me, who eats marmalade, and other sweets, full of work am I and wealth, though too closely packed for health, answer on page 230, afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 203, chapter III, what I am going to tell you, Ping Wang began, is purely a family matter, it is the reason why I left China, my father was the Mandarin of Kwangan, and although he did not become a Christian, he was very friendly with the English missionaries, and when I was quite a little boy he asked them to teach me all the things which English boys were taught, when I was 10 years old I was sent to a school at Hong Kong, kept by an Englishman, and I remained there until I was 18, that, of course, accounts for my speaking English fairly well, when I was 18 my father sent for me, but I found Chinese manners and customs were not pleasing to me after so many years among English people, therefore I asked my father to permit me to return to Hong Kong and become a merchant, he was considering the matter, and I believe that he would have given his consent, when he was seized by Chin Chu's orders and executed, he was unpopular with the authorities at Peking, the Mandarin of every town has to squeeze as much money as he possibly can out of his people and send it to the authorities. My father was a kind-hearted man, and as he did not squeeze his people so much as most Mandarins, he did not send so much money to the imperial coffers as the authorities wished. Twice they reprimanded him, and Chin Chu, who lived at Kwangan, hearing of this, went to Peking and asserted that my father retained for his own use the greater part of the money which he had squeezed out of the people. The high officials believed this false tale, and, having received bribes from Chinchu, empowered him to have my father executed and succeed him as Mandarin. My mother and brother were also killed, and our house burned to the ground. Fortunately for me I was not in the town at the time, and hearing what had taken place I started off at once for Hong Kong. Of course, it was useless for me to attempt to get Chinchu punished for such events are of frequent occurrence in parts of my poor country. So, having a little money, which I obtained by selling some jewelry which I possessed, I took a passage to England, 
What has happened to me since I have already told you? It is a very sad story, Charlie declared, feelingly, and I am exceedingly sorry for you. But what surprises me island that after having suffered so much in your native land you should think of returning to it. I will tell you my reason. Chinchu confiscated all our property, but I hope to be able to recover a very valuable portion of it. Before our house was burned to the ground, everything that it contained was removed to Chinchu's residence. Among those things was a large brass image of Buddha. If I can recover that I shall be a rich man, but brass images of Buddha are not very valuable. That one island because it was my father's safe a receptacle for his very precious rubies. He made the idol himself, and no one but he and I knew how to open it. Chinchu will never discover the secret, or guess that the idol contains anything. Therefore I wish to return to my native place in disguise, and obtain that idol by some means or other. If I succeed in obtaining it, I shall be a rich man. I should like to go with you. Charlie exclaimed. I wish you could. Ping Wang answered. Eagerly. I can read character well enough to know that you are not what you pretend to be. You have come to see for novelty or curiosity, but not for necessity. If you accompany me to my native place, I promise you that if I recover my father's idol I will repay you all the expense to which you have been put, and give you some of the precious stones. I wasn't thinking of the stones, but of the adventure and experience. If my father raises no objection, and will supply me with the necessary money, I will go with you gladly. Ping Wan was delighted, and Charlie added to his high spirits by confiding to him the reason of his being aboard the Sparrowhawk. So your father is the man whom the skipper hopes to swindle, Ping Wan exclaimed, and went off into a fit of laughter. Stop that row! The skipper shouted, coming aft. Can't you find any work to do? I'll have no loafers aboard my boat. Here, you China, you get forward, and trim the lamps. Ping Wan rose to obey. Hurry up, the skipper growled, and kicked him. In a moment Charlie was on his feet. You wretched little bully, he said to the skipper. If you will treat that man again, I will knock you down. You dare to threaten me on my own ship, the skipper shouted, white with rage. I'm the skipper, and I'll let you know it. I'll clap you in irons if you give me any of your back answers. Why not try kicking me instead? I'll give you in charge for mutiny when we get back to Grimsby. I shouldn't be in a hurry to enter a police court, if I were you. Prosecutors are sometimes asked unpleasant questions. The chief engineer at that moment came up from the engine room. Skipper, I want a word with you. He said, right you are. The skipper replied, and walked over to him, well pleased to bring his argument with Charlie to an end. Charlie was not really a very formidable opponent for a grown man. But Skipper Drummond, like many bullies, was a great coward. Charles, left alone, resumed his seat on the ropes and, forgetting for a time the Skipper's existence, spent a pleasant half hour in thinking over the story which King One had related to him. About three hours after the quarrel, the Sparrowhawk arrived at the Dogger, a submarine bank, the nearest point of which is about 60 miles from England. It is 170 miles long and 70 miles broad. We shall shoot in an hour's time, the mate said to Charlie, and you must give us a hand. Whom are you going to shoot? Charlie inquired, jokingly. I know whom you would like to shoot the skipper. He has taken a dislike to you, and tells me that you are the biggest scoundrel he ever had aboard. The mate smiled as he spoke, and added, after a few moments interval, the skipper is a queer customer, and, if you take my advice, 
you will do all you can to please him. Anyhow, he says that you are to give a hand when we shoot and when we haul the trawl. I am to be fisherman as well as cook. Is he going to pay me double wages? You had better ask him. Got a mug of tea handy? Charlie had. And he gave it to him. We shall want tea again after shooting. The mate said to Charlie as he replaced the mug on the hook. Leaving the big kettle on the stove. Charlie went out to witness the preparations for beginning fishing. And was just in time to see the men enter a small buoy. Fitted with a light and a flag. This was anchored so that the sparrowhawk. By keeping it in sight. Should not wander away from the fishing ground. They were in about 26 fathoms of water. And, if they lost sight of the buoy, they would probably steam into deeper water, and the net would then be unable to reach the bottom. By day the fishermen keep within sight of the buoy flag, by night they watch the buoy light. In fishing fleets, when some 20 or 30 steam trawlers belong to one firm, an old smack called a mark ship is anchored on the fishing ground. It can be seen for many miles in daylight, and by night its whereabouts is made known by rockets fired from it. But single boaters, such as the Sparrowhawk, have to rely upon their own little flag and light boys. When the Sparrowhawk had anchored her boy she steamed off, and, punctually at five o'clock, shot her gear, or, in plainer language, lowered her big triangular fishing net. This having been done without a hitch, the men had their tea. Charlie took his in the galley, having determined to spend as little time as possible in the fox single quote as single quote league. He had discovered that the crew of the Sparrowhawk was composed of the black sheep of Grimsby and Hull. They were men whom no decent North Sea skipper would have had on his boat. On nearly all the trawlers working out of Yarmouth, Grimsby, and Hull, the men are fine, manly, thoroughbred Englishmen, facing danger fearlessly and uncomplainingly year in and year out. Drunkenness is almost unknown among them, and bad language is rarely heard. If Charlie had been on almost any other boat than the Sparrowhawk he would have thoroughly enjoyed sitting at the Fox single quote as single quote Lee table, having a chat with the men, but to save a few pounds the skipper had engaged, at low wages, men who were known to be bad characters, and who could not, therefore, get a job on any other trawler. Skipper Drummond had himself been discharged for drunkenness by the owners of a fleet in whose employ he had been for some years. Where he got the money from to purchase a trawler was a mystery to most people. Although it was discovered later that a betting man was in partnership with him, Charlie, being satisfied that the skipper intended to make an attempt to swindle his father, was anxious to get back to Lincoln as speedily as possible to make known what he had discovered. He had forgotten to ask the bow-legged cook how long the sparrowhawk would remain at sea, and could, therefore, form no idea of when he would get home continued on page 218, afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 215, while Charlie was regretting his ignorance of trawler's movements, Ping Wang appeared at the galley door, well, Charlie said, has the skipper said anything more to you, Mumber Ping Wang answered, smilingly, I believe you have frightened him, but he will pay you out somehow or other, I hope, for his own sake that he won't attempt to, for I hate the little fellow already, and if he interferes with me unnecessarily I will give him a sound thrashing, he is very strong, Ping Wan remarked, warningly, can he do this, Charlie asked, catching hold of a bucket full of water and holding it easily at arm's length straight from the shoulder, Ping Wan made no reply but gazed at Charlie in astonishment, Charlie was slightly built, 
and King Wang had no idea that he was so strong, but he had gone in for a course of physical development exercises before coming to Grimsby, and was in fine condition, if the skipper thinks, as I did, that you are not very strong, he said at last, he will be very surprised, well, Charlie said, rather pleased at the astonishment he had caused, let us forget him for a time, when do we return to Grimsby, in three or four days, so soon, I thought we were out for three weeks, at the least, I had an idea that steam trawlers always remained out for three weeks, boats belonging to the fleets do, a steam carrier collects the boxes of fish from them every morning, and carries them off to London, but single boaters have to take in their own fish to Grimsby, and therefore they have to run in every few days, or else the fish wouldn't be fresh, then I shan't have to endure the skipper for as long as I expected, you'll have to endure him for seven or eight weeks, I'm afraid, when we run in just to land fish we are not allowed to quit the ship, after unloading we sail as soon as possible, but do you mean to say that he can prevent my leaving the ship at Grimsby, I believe he can, you see, if men were allowed to leave whenever they liked, the fishing industry would soon be upset, I didn't think of that, however, I will get a substitute if possible, there will be no objection to that, I suppose, I don't know, the skipper is a curious kind of fellow, and he may refuse to let you go, so that he may have the pleasure of bullying you, why don't you pretend that you are ill, he would put you ashore very soon then, I don't like the idea of getting out of an unpleasant position in that way, by the by, how do you pass the time away before hauling the trawl, some of the men turn in and others play cards or drafts, do you care about drafts, oh, yes, but I won't go down in the fox single quote as single quotely to play. I will bring the board up here if it is not being used. King Wan hurried away, and returned in a minute or two with the drafts. They are having a sing-song in the fox single quote as single quotely. He said, the skipper is there, and is a little bit the worse for drink. Chapter IV. Charlie won the first game at drafts, and they had just begun a second when the skipper suddenly appeared at the galley door. His face was flushed and there was a wild look in his eyes, the galley is not the place for playing drafts, he said, and with his hand swept the pieces off the board, Charlie and Ping Wan made no remark, it was plain to them that he had paid that visit for the sole purpose of bullying them, and they were wondering what his next complaint would be, I want a mug of tea, he said, seeing that the kettle was not boiling, Charlie put the kettle on the fire at once, that's the result of playing drafts when you ought to be at work, the skipper growled, I always want some tea at this time, in future it shall.